Welcome to the Gig Boss Podcast, a show about artistry and industry and music. My name is Adam Meckler, and it's my mission to get you the tools to have a thriving career. I spent the weekend hanging out with Rex Richardson, the great virtuoso trumpet soloist who toured with Joe Henderson and basically tours all over the world premiering insane trumpet works, stuff that's written for like the kind of stuff that only a few trumpet players in the world can do physically. Pretty wild. He's like this crazy virtuoso, amazing dude. He's become a good friend over the years. And I did actually turn on the microphones. We went to my office, we turned on the microphones, and we talked for the podcast. So that's going to come out in a week. This conversation today is with the great Kai Sandoval. Kai is a New York City-based trumpeter who is a full-time player. He's a full-time player in the scene. He doesn't have to teach if he doesn't want to. He's crushing the social media game. We talked a little bit about how he built his social media numbers, but also we talked about how he like got plugged in the scene in New York City how he made the transition moving from a different city to New York City, and how he makes his living right now, how he's able to pay his bills in New York on a full-time playing schedule, right, as a trumpet player. And it's pretty interesting the avenues that Kai has been able to carve out. I think you're going to dig this conversation. We talk a lot about where confidence comes from. Kai just seems like a confident person. Of course, like, trumpet players kind of have that mentality anyway and I think somehow that's built into like the instrument that's built into playing trumpet because it's really hard to hide so from the time that you're a young player you know you're a fifth grader playing trumpet it's like you can't hide your mistakes and in order to play trumpet at a high level you kind of have to pretend like you're the baddest trumpet player in the world and that baddest meaning good right you got to pretend like even if you're not you gotta have to have that kind of like killer instinct in order to play the instrument at a high level and knowing that you can't hide your mistakes, it, it kind of pushes you into that mindset. It pushes you into the mindset of like, all right, everyone's gonna hear this anyway. And so I just talked to Kai a little bit about like how he developed that in himself. And we talked a little bit about the differences between like being an entertainer and how that's viewed in some communities versus being an artist, versus being you know an instrumentalist, versus being a side player. You know, it's like there's a lot of nuances to being a performer. And I think. Each one of those little facets of being a performer is really important to consider. Even if you're somebody who considers yourself somebody who only does art music, right? Which is a lot of what I've done in my career. I think it's really important to consider like, what's, how do you, how are you presenting your music? What's the performance like? Are you an entertainer? Are you meant to be entertaining people? And I think the, like, I think the answer is yes. Uh, that's, a, that's a tough one, you know? It's like, a lot of people are like, people should come just for my music. And it's like, well, yeah, there's definitely an entertainment factor. That's why they're coming to the show, to be entertained. And so what your definition of entertainment is can be different, gig to gig, person to person. And I got to talk to Kai a little bit about that. But talking to him about like where confidence comes from, I think is a really deep and interesting conversation that we got into a little bit. Before we go too far, I want to tell you a little bit about the Gig Boss app because things are cooking here. We just made a down payment with our coding company to build out the books page, okay? So this is a really big development in where the app is going. You're going to be able to track all of your financials and eventually export those things so you can see how much you made with each individual band you play in your totals on the year your totals of money in totals of money out who you paid more than six hundred dollars to who paid you more than six hundred dollars these have all been in the original plans of the app and we just like haven't had the funds to build it yet and we're there we've been raising money going super hard so that we can get you guys this tool that's incredibly valuable it's like it's already doing 
really a great job of like organizing the scheduling side of managing multiple bands or being a freelancer in multiple bands. So if that describes you, it's free on iOS and Android right now. That's a really exciting development for us. And if you're if you dig what we do here on the podcast, if you dig what I'm doing as an artist, as a player, you want to support what we're doing in your player, download the app. It's free. Use it to organize your stuff and then send me an email, Adam at gigbossapp.com and let me know what you think. All right. So this is my conversation with Kai Sandoval. Well, thanks for having me on, man. Yeah, dude. Yeah. To talk to you. Yeah, likewise. You know, we've never had a, an informal well, conversation. So this is it. <laughs> We're jumping right in. Yeah. Yeah. I've always, I've seen your path for about the last 10 years and it's been, it's very cool. It's cool to see your hustle and it's very cool to see like you playing with Youngblood and doing all those awesome gigs. I think you played with Corey Wong recently. Yeah. yeah, I'm on three of his records, like some of the early ones, The Optimist and Motivational Music for the Syncopated Soul. And then I did the like Dave Kaz thing. Nice. In the fall of last, no, it was like fall of before vaccination time. That was wild. That was like, Corey was like, we're doing it. I was like, all right. right. Yeah. Here we go. Yeah. Everyone was, was so pumped before the pandemic. Yeah. It was like the brightest years. And then all of a sudden lights out. Yeah. Are you, are you like finding that you're working now more than you were before or like as much as you were? Yeah, I'm definitely, I'm working more than I was before. Yeah. I think a lot of people may have this in common, but I was doing a whole lot of a big spread of different stuff. I was running Shaghorns with my partner, Chris Ott. And then I was just doing like the local New York club scene circuit with different bands like Afrobeat and reggae and all sorts of stuff and brass bands. And then the pandemic shut everything down. And then uh, I started doing a ton of Jewish weddings. Mm. And then Shaghorn started taking off. We had like our most busy, lucrative year last year. Cool. A lot of, you know, weddings on ketchup. And then I played with Ripe for a couple of years. So I was basically just like balancing the three of those things and working more than I should have. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Tell me about like, tell me about Shaghorns. What kind of stuff does Shaghorns do? Shaghorns, I started that as kind of like a premier horn section in Boston before I moved to New York. Yeah. I was thinking like, well, if I'm going to move to New York, I need to like have something to call my own, something to like bring to the scene. Yeah. And so now it's kind of evolved into a brass band and this is an amazing arranger and he's done all the arrangements and we're creatively and business wise, we're running it together and everything. And so we kind of blew up this spot called Radagast. It's like a beer hall in Williamsburg nice. and all of the, the 20 something year olds living in white Disneyland out there. Yeah. They're all like, you know, standing on the tables, smashing <laughs> beer glasses and stuff. Wow. Yeah. So then, you know, from there we're getting recommendations for weddings and corporate events and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. So, so are you focusing your energy on those kinds of money making opportunities or are you guys trying to tour and like do records, increase Spotify numbers? Like what's your motivation <laughs> with that group? Right. You know, at the moment it's, it's kind of a relief. We're kind of just focusing on like the business aspect of it. We're playing all covers. So 
before the pandemic, I was a little bit more focused on let's go tour with this thing. Let's be like, you know, a ragtag bunch of brass players yep. doing the tour thing. And then I kind of realized, you know, that's a lot of work and it doesn't pay. And yep. it takes a long time to work on that. And then the pandemic cut that all down. And then we're getting all these, you know, wedding contracts that are going to pay more than doing a tour anyways. So yeah, we're just kind of keeping it in the commercial pocket. Cool. Yeah. yeah. You know, with Youngblood, it was like, I stepped into that when it was already really happening and, but they did 10 months a year on the road in the early two thousands, just like sleeping on floors and like really, you know, grinding to build up their audiences. And like that now it's obviously like they can book tours, but it's still take, it's a 10 piece band. So it still takes like six weeks on the road to even like, it takes, I don't know, what is it? Three weeks to break even and then three more weeks to make money. You know, it's like, it's that yeah, much. Man. If you're going to go to Europe, it's like it takes that much of playing just to break even. And then it's like, yeah, we got to be on the road at least five, six weeks if we're going to make any money. It's right. kind of nuts. Yeah. And then, of course, like if you're doing the European tour, it's probably like, what, 5% of people who are going out there who are actually making good money doing it. Yeah. And then it's a whole bunch of like festival fillers and clubs and stuff like that. So it's yeah. pretty badass to be over there. It's pretty. It is. But I never had to do, I've done it with other bands where we tried to like really bootstrap it and build audiences on the road. But I was lucky to just be like in the right place at the right time. They needed a trumpet player and right. I was kind of playing brass band music, you know, and I was in the area. It's just right. like, just worked. That's perfect. Was, yeah. Which was cool. All right. So you're yeah. full time. Are you full time player? Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, dude. Yeah. The last two years I've been definitely hustling my butt off yep. and between the travel and everything, some months I've been doing, I've only had like three days off in a month during like the summer months. So wow. my new year's resolution is don't work so hard, sure. but yeah, but that kind of crumbled in February and I'm like, okay, take it down a notch. If I could keep it to like, you know, four gigs a week, that'd be perfect. Sure. You know, and I just, I've told the story before, but I remember when I was playing full time, I'm not playing full time anymore. When I was playing full time, I did a month where, you know, I played a show every day, multiple shows some days. And then it was month of July. And then like my birthday hit and I was broke and I was like, what? Dude, yeah. what do I, <laughs> like, what do I got to do to like, I can't play any more than I'm playing. It was such a, yeah man it was such an eye-opener it was like there has to be so i guess my question for you is like you're doing corporate events you're doing that kind of stuff is that where you get the beef of your income are you teaching at all as like a side thing to bring in any other income are you doing anything else like you have passive income from some other lane that you're relying on passive income no not so much you know i was like i was I think everybody did their research on the stock market and crypto and all that stuff. Yeah, sure. So I'm, you know, I'm trying to work that angle, but the bulk of my income comes from Jewish weddings. Hmm. I know it's kind of, I don't want to like give it away for the rest of the world, but it's sure. a pretty, it's a pretty dope scene. And to be honest, it pays much better than Broadway. And it's like, wow. Yeah. And the schedule is like Sunday through Thursday. For mm. these like orthodox weddings and stuff. Interesting. And, so you got we you got like end of the week and weekends off, kind of. Friday, yeah. Saturday. Yeah. I mean, if I if I choose to, if I choose to have like Friday, Saturday off. And by that I, I mean can, like you can play 
other gigs. Like you can play non-wedding gigs theoretically on on a Friday and yeah. a Saturday. You know, yeah. Right, That's, right. Or have cool. a night off. Yeah. Or have a night or... off. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah. are you Jewish? Is that like part of no. your history? No, it's just kind of this thing I stumbled upon. I probably three, four years ago, I subbed into this band called Blue Melody at this venue called The Sands. And don't give it all away, man. Don't, <laughs> I, I, you know, it's like, why not? I'll reveal it. Who's going to yeah, listen? Sure. Who's going to listen to this in full? We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> and then move out to New York. Right. But yeah, I was playing with all these guys like Yitzi, Shlomi, Chaim, Femi, like all these, you know, for us, it's like we're completely green to this whole thing. And yep. playing with this band the first time the sax player named John Tendy, who I swear is like one of the nastiest tenor players you'd ever hear, but he plays only Jewish weddings. So you probably wow. wouldn't, you know, hear him in a lot of other settings. And then the drummer was super nasty. I was like, this is like a top 40 corporate gig on steroids. Yep. And like yep. the tempos are all like 120 to 130 BPM and fast 16th note horn lines and stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. So that's fun stuff. I play, I played in a band called Klezmerica in, in Minneapolis for a while. And it was led by this guy, Joe Voss. And he ended up writing a show called the soul of Gershwin. That was like all about how George Gershwin was Jewish and a lot, used a lot of like music from the old country and music from the shtetl music from the synagogue as melodies for tunes. We now know as jazz tunes like summertime and stuff. And so he would do like, he would have like a Jewish cantor sing, what they would sing in the synagogue and then have like a jazz singer sing the jazz version of the tune. And that was like basically the premise of the show. And there was a guy that played George Gershwin that narrated. It was cool. And the band was on stage and we would play all this Klezmer stuff. And it's all like what you're describing, high yeah. energy, fast lines. Right. I kind of, and I listened to a bunch to that, like Dave Douglas, John Zorn, Masada band for a little while. I don't know if you're hip to that, but it's some a, cool a bit, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that's cool, man. It's an interesting lane that you found, man. It is. It's a super niche sort of thing. Yeah. And you know what keeps me sane is like the horn players on those gigs are, they're all like top-notch guys. And, you know, we all keep each other on our toes. Yeah. And it's like one of those gigs that we're not like, you know, sometimes it's a little bit corny, but, you know, sometimes through the pandemic, it definitely kept my chops in shape. It's like a lot of playing and you know yeah and you're doing your soft playing in the uh, ceremony like ballad kind of playing and then you're doing some background then you're doing a lot of in your face loud kind of stuff yeah, it's a good cool. balance yeah so tell me a little bit about your background like you you said you were in boston did you go to nec is that right yeah i went to nec for six years i did a bachelor's and a master's out there and yeah by the time i was doing my master's i was i felt a little bit guilty i was so distracted with like you know just playing out and didn't hit the shed as hard as I, I wanted to. But, uh, yeah, I got busy pretty quickly, and then I stuck around another year and a half. And Boston, is a it's a beautiful scene. There's a lot of super heavy cats out there, but I was just kind of seeing, like, it get it started to get a little stagnant, you know, in the... Like you felt like you were hitting a ceiling or what? Yeah, I was hitting the ceiling. I was kind of maxed out with my time and being places physically and my income and stuff like that. And, and I wasn't like getting touring opportunities or like hmm. bigger opportunities. So I was like, yeah, let's go to New York and let's get an address, but not live there. 
Really? Is that what you did? Have... Yeah. Because you're on the road. Yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah, I want to be traveling. I want to be doing like, you know, hip shit and, you know, making a mark and getting yep. challenged. Yeah. So was the transition difficult going from Boston to New York? Yeah, it was pretty, it was hugely difficult, I would say. It, I had a lot of fun doing it. I was basically just fed up with gigging full time. And I had like a savings and I just hit the clubs for like six months. Wow, <laughs> got, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had a nice. subletter. Yeah, I had a subletter in my room and he didn't clean up. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to clean tonight. I'm just going to go out. And then that just kept up for like three or four months in a row. And I was like, you know, as long as there's music at the bar, like I'm being productive. <laughs> I'm as long as I'm meeting musicians, you know, and having fun. Yeah, there you go. That's yeah. cool. Dude, so that that feel like oh, I got that out of my system, but now I can work 900 days a year. Or do you feel like you need another a club phase? Yeah, I feel like everybody kind of needs like that break from reality. Yeah, like ongoing, like once every couple of years you need like a couple months just to fuck around and have a lot of fun. Were you playing your horn a bunch then? Yeah. Yeah. I was definitely playing a lot, but I was mostly just like going to jam sessions, meeting people. And then like summer came around and I had a full-time wedding band that still wanted me on mm. their schedule. You know, whatever I spent, I made it up during the summertime and then the next year I told myself, all right, I'm cutting it off, cutting Boston off, sticking around, you know, sink yeah. or swim. Yeah. I had a buddy that did the same move from Boston to New York. And then he was back in Boston a ton playing because he wasn't yeah. finding work. But it's like, it's interesting that you're going out, you're going to shows, you're going to jam sessions. It's like, that's like a huge period of time of networking too. Like you're meeting people, you know, so then it's like you, you had that concentrated period of like. Here I am, I'm in the city, and work came thereafter. Not, not, and then you were working pretty much consistently after that? Yeah, progress is never a straight line, and mm. it ebbed and flowed. You know, There's always moments of frustration, feeling like, you know, I'm at this level, I can perform great, but how do I put myself out there so people are actually seeing that, you know? Yeah. Music, unfortunately, the music business, it's not a meritocracy. So it's not necessarily the best musicians get the best jobs. Right. It's clicky. It's there's lots of politics. For a long time, I was thinking, oh, yeah, my path is going to be breaking into the Broadway scene and then going from there. But it's, you know, Broadway is super clicky. It's super, yeah. it's a lot of older cats and, you know, they can play. They can really play. But Everybody who has a job that's worth keeping is going to hold on to it. So there was a period after about like two years of being in New York, it was very touch and go. Sometimes I was getting a lot of gigs, but then the cost of living in New York and parking tickets and a car and all that stuff, it just became like overwhelming. I hit a cruise ship for a couple months. And then luckily after that, like everything just kind of snowballed and, and picked up pretty quickly. Wow. Yeah. So since about like 20, 2019, I've been doing it pretty heavy. Yeah. But up until then, it was kind of touch and go. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So did you study, you study with Lori Frank at NEC? I did. Yeah. Studied with her for about two years before she passed. 
Wow. What was that like? Yeah. It was amazing. Of all the trumpet teachers I've ever had, she was definitely the most personally and humanly in touch mm. with herself and her students. And also, I would say definitely the most organized with her teaching. You yeah. know, you showed up to a lesson and you really felt like, one, she remembered, two, she was keeping you in check, and three, she really cared. She cared about your progress and your personal development. Cool. Yeah. And, you know, I've had other teachers up to that point give me like their philosophy and their breakdown of their teaching methodology, but Lori was the most clear and defined with it and also just gave me a huge building block for my fundamentals to, to keep building my fundamentals off of. Yeah. Yeah. I've studied a lot out of Flexus. Like Flexus has like been my go-to since like 2008. Somebody somebody told me about it and I started working out of it and it was like right after I graduated from my undergrad and I, my, I had a great teacher who was big into fundamentals as well and but it wasn't until I started really working on the flexus stuff that like my whole ability on the horn completely changed it was like yeah kind of insane I don't know how much of it was can be attributed to like I was playing way too many hours every day when I was in college and then like when I graduated I wasn't so fatigued all the time, and so I, so my 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 range went up like a fourth. You know, it was yeah kind of nuts. It was like I was in the like C to D range, and then all of a sudden I'm playing E's and F's and F sharps and G's, sort of G's. Not until Young Blood. Then Young Blood, it was like then it was all necessity, right? It was just like you have to do this thing where you tongue a bunch of G's, so then yeah. you have to figure out how to do it. And, and in a lot of ways, that was so great for me. Cause it was like, all right, here's what you have to do. <laughs> Figure right. it out. But yeah. the flexes stuff really kind of took my playing to the next level. It's really, a, and I always kind of wished that I had a chance to take a lesson with Lori, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. The flexus book is really great. I always recommend that to like, you know, students and stuff, but it's really the, like the thought behind it and getting introduced to it in like a, in a slow manner that makes it, all that stuff like super lasting but right what exercise could you pick like a favorite or a couple favorite exercises that and what i started doing was like she has this too in the book but you know you do it in octaves you do it in tens you do it like all over the horn and then i started adding note bends to it so i'd be like and i'd be doing note bends half step note bends with each changed note you know so just kind of uh -huh. like added the note bends into the like that chromatic lip slur exercise right so i just do i do that every single day i've done a whole bunch of the like crescendo decrescendo lip trill things the ones that i do every day are like the note the note bending and the and that li lip slur exercise pretty mm -hmm. much now yeah it's like it's yeah. distilled it down to those things but it's like i've worked out of that book pretty extensively right Nice. This isn't a trumpet show either, man. We don't have to. Oh, come on. I was like, resist the urge to ask Kai how to play high notes. Resist the urge to ask Kai how to play high notes. I can talk about trumpet and gear and nerdy <laughs> shit all day long, man. Yeah. I talked to, so I don't remember who I talked to. They were like, I took a lesson with Kai, man. And it's like, I'm playing high notes better now, you know? That's dope. I don't remember who it was. Somebody that's talked good. to you. Yeah. That's I wanted good. to ask cool. you, like, you, you talked about the music business not being a meritocracy. I wanted to talk to you about, like, the relationship between being a performer and being an artist and like how you identify like 
I see you I like when I'm when I see like videos of you on Instagram, which are like snapshots of little things, but like you know, I see you both as like this badass player and somebody who's really putting on a show, who's like performing. Like do you like are you intentional about that as a performer? Do you feel like that's a part of your higher ability? Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I think that that is part of our responsibility as a musician to put on a show to make people forget about their troubles, about their day job, about, you know, all that stuff. And you want to, especially when I'm playing like a fun show versus a serious wedding, whatever, even, but even on the weddings, you want, you want to give people permission to be goofy. So I like, and I remember hearing that from like Jim Carrey from his interview, like he's so, over the top that it gives people permission to laugh and feel goofy too. You know, not like music, all music is goofy, but in general, if you're having a good time, the audience is having a good time. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like that applies to art music too? I don't know if like, is there a difference between art music and entertainment music? I don't know. Like probably not, but right. Right. Like is art music. Could that just be, not like I have a my nose in the air about stuff, but I feel like there's a lot of music that is kind of elitist. And there's a lot of jazz musicians that think, well, if it's not jazz, if it's not bebop and it doesn't have changes, then it's not important to me. Right. But jazz and its creation was all about entertainment. It was all about people going out and drinking and having a good time and doing debaucherous things, whatever. And then it became institutionalized and now it's become sterile and now it has a formula to it, to the education and everything, you know, deep down we're all humans and we all just want to have a good time. Yeah. We want to enjoy ourselves. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. That was one of the, like we started this band Nookie Jones in Minneapolis. It was like kind of R and B neo soul band and, we were all like, you know, a bunch of us held degrees in music and the whole idea was like, let's do a band that we're not beholden to this like, you know, academic approach to music making. Like, let's put on a show. Let's make people feel good. Let's, and let's also incorporate like cool stuff musically that we know, but let's do it in a way that like, let's package it so that people enjoy themselves. Let's all wear let's wear matching outfits. Let's do dance moves. Let's yeah. like that became a big part of what that band was and why I think that band became so successful. And so I yeah, it's like I obviously I think there's wiggle room in and there's a lot of crossover. Like you said, man, I've said this a bunch about jazz that like a lot of those early groups even in the bebop era, it's like Dizzy Gillespie was an entertainer and like you know, you listen to like Clifford Brown Max Roach band and there's like transitions between tunes and there's like worked out sections and worked out banter between tunes jokes being told it's like a lot of these guys were like stand-up comedians on the microphone it's like we've really lost that entertainment piece of the music and it's become this like either you're reading out of a real book as background music for at a restaurant which is ultimately probably what killed the music in the end but or you're you know, turning around to the band and telling jokes to the band and everybody's laughing on stage or you're talking about the tune or you're rehearsing the tune on the stage rather than engaging with the audience and talking about what's coming and telling them what to listen for. And these like yeah. easy softball things that you could do to kind of loop your audience into 
your music if it's less overtly entertaining, you know? Right. Yeah, exactly. Telling a story, making it feel personal, bringing the human back in there. I went, I remember this experience in college. I went to the lily pad in Boston and I went to go see, I won't say who it is, but one of the staple, (laughs) (laughs) one of the staple performers there who's like, you know, an amazing musician. And he started his tune by saying, this one's called, this one's called blah, blah, blah. It consists of minor seconds, major thirds, and perfect fourths. And the form is like this. And of course he slayed the shit and he know and he knows his audience. It's a lot of like Berkeley and NEC guys with their phones out, like, you know, so that entertains them. But I was like, Oh my God, this is why the public doesn't come see jazz. Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> like the nerdiest breakdown. And it was hilarious. But at the same time, I was like, okay, you shouldn't be teaching the kids this. You know, I I, uh, I, saw, I watched a video of you with Sandoval with the Disney band, like the Disney, what is that, the college, Disney college jazz band or whatever? Yeah. That's Deep. gone. Like first, that's gone now, right? Is it gone? I feel oh, like, the- like Disney got rid of that. Yeah, apparently there was like that big, they said they were taking it out and then everyone from the college band like posted on their stories and everything, like bring it back and here's all my great memories from it. And then they released some other article saying they were going to actually bring it back. So, Oh, so they are bringing it back or they just got a lot of backlash and so they're... Yeah, the best part of that band, the thing holding it all together was really Ron McCurdy. You like, you need that person who's going to work with the kids, talk to the people, put the music together, rehearse it, be the person in between the studio musicians and the students. So that takes a special person to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So you had a good experience with that. Do you feel like that led to some opportunities for you doing that? Yeah, that was a huge experience. That was probably, that was definitely one of the most fun summers I've ever had as a student or working musician. And then from that, I met, I met Chris Ott and I met Dan White who, you know, they do the Hunter Tones band, yeah. but then yeah. me and Chris are doing Shaghorns now. Cool. And that's, you know, and then Dan is playing with us as much as possible in that band. So it was really kind of the beginning. It was kind of one of my New York horn section nuggets that kind of stuck together. Cool. Through and, the years. You know, one of the thoughts I had watching you play with Arturo was like, wh- like, where does confidence come from? Like, I was just talking with Roy McGrath in Chicago about fear, about like fear in music and how musicians aren't fearless, but we're accustomed to being in fear. You're standing next to like one of the all time great trumpet players, and like visually, you look very calm, you look confident. So like, where does your confidence come from as a musician? Well, without, without giving a crazy spiritual answer right off the bat, I, I did like the year prior to that, I actually took lessons with him in LA. Oh wow. Yeah. I went out, I, we were both playing the uh, flip Oaks wild thing trumpet and through the website, there was a promotion for anyone playing those trumpets to take lessons with him for 110 bucks an hour. And yeah, so I, stayed with my uncle down in LA and I was practicing my ass off for the whole month, re- writing everything down. And my personal experience with him, like in the practice room at his house, he was a super sweet, very caring, hands-on guy. Of course, like 
you know, very machismo, very confident and all of that. And he was teaching me that kind of stuff too. But yeah, he was kind of, he was my idol from like a young age. I watched like a VHS tape of him playing and I watched that like over and over again in sixth grade, you know, personally from my interactions with him, I just felt very confident standing next to him. And I was like, yeah, you're going to school me like whatever, (laughs) like school me, but I'm going to try to play my ass off too. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Cool. Cool. Yeah. What about the spiritual answer? The spiritual answer. I think Miles said it best when he was like, you know, before every show, I just look in the mirror and I say, you are the baddest motherfucker out here. (laughs) And you just got to build up your ego like that. You got to know, like, you got to dress up the ego and you got to undress the ego. And it's totally just the ego is just an outfit that just like wearing funny shades on stage. You know, I'm not Liberace, but I can pretend I'm Liberace sometimes. Sure. The ego or is I an can... outfit that you put on and take off. Right. Yeah. The confidence can be not. That's such an interesting idea because like, you know, you go to the practice room and you want to be real with yourself. Right. Be like, what of do course. I suck at? You know, right, <laughs> so right. Like, there has to be a certain level of self-awareness. Of course. Yeah. But it's like you can't like being on stage and performing is not the time for massive self-awareness and self-doubt. No, but <laughs> but it always creeps in there somehow, depending on what you're doing. Right. Right. Yeah. So how do you deal with it? Do you, have you been in a situation where it's crept in and you're performing and. How do you get out of your own head? I feel good to say like that happens less and less these days Yeah. on the situations where it happens. It's in those situations where I'm not sure if I'm prepared, you know, like I'm not sure if I completely memorized loose all off solo from spinning wheel, or I'm not sure if I can hit a high G sharp at the end of a three hour big band session. I had this recording session, probably I was on the spot more than I've ever been before with Ray Chu and this big band. And we were recording music for the 4th of July fireworks for NBC. Oh, cool. Yeah. And I was on lead for that session and all of the, there was nothing below like a G on top of the staff. Everything was like ridiculous like ledger line kind of stuff. Outrageous. And yeah. And we started at 10 in the morning, which is like my worst time to start playing trumpet. Yeah. And I had a heavy workout the night before. So like my abs were feeling tired and everything was just kind of giving up, but I stuck it out and it turned out to be like an amazing session. Got the high notes at the end yep. and you know, was about to pass out and he was like, good, that's the take. But, you know, I wasn't ready for, I wasn't ready for like the pace that we went at. It was, he was going like, he was doing sections probably eight to 10 times and then taking a small break. Yeah. Eight to 10 times. Yeah, man. Because he was doing like, he wasn't individually tracking sessions, sections. He was, you know, he was doing the full band take. And if somebody was like a little bit out of tune or the feel wasn't quite right. So I was getting chopped out and I was like, you know, mentally just trying to stay in the game on that. Yeah. Sorry. I'm just getting rid of this call. All good. Okay. Yeah. That's, it's interesting, man. That's a, 
you know, when I record my big band, it's like we'll do three or four passes at each section, not yeah. eight to ten. Yeah. yeah, he was rehearsing them about like four or five times, and then we do another like four or five takes. But this is the first time everyone's seen the music, so it's like you're in there, you're reading, or at least first time you were all playing together? First time we were all playing together, yeah, we got the parts ahead of time. But, you know, even still, it was nerve-wracking. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so preparedness is a factor in being, I don't know, nervous, being present, being able to overcome mental obstacles. Right, right. Like... If I know it's probably old school to say, but if you can just practice, if you get the shit ahead of time and you just practice it to death until you can play it like the back of your hand, there's nothing holding you back from feeling like a bull on the gig. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. That was one of the things I had written down here was like, is it just preparedness? Is it just practice that makes you feel confident? It's like, I've thought about that a lot. I've had students that have dealt with, nerves and like inability to perform sh- literal shaking yeah you know? it's like i don't yeah. know what's the answer right right i think it's it's a physical i mean it, yeah as long as you're staying on top of you're checking all the boxes you feel physically good you're drinking plenty of water your diet isn't weighing you down or you're eating enough kind of sure. stuff yeah you, talk, you talked about a heavy workout are you like you working out a bunch? You staying fit? Is that a part of your routine? I definitely go through phases. Yeah, January, I did about three weeks of martial arts. And then February, I was doing five or six nights a week of gigs. You know, I was getting my chest chops in shape, not my yeah. not my triceps. Right. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. Cool. Yeah. yeah I, feel like, I feel like fitness has helped me a lot, you know, just in terms of my confidence, being, it's been a big factor, you know, some of those lifestyle changes has been a big factor in like not second guessing myself, being confident, moving in the direction where I think I should go, putting myself out there, all those things, getting gigs yeah. with a big artist and then being like, all right, I can do this. You know, I deserve this opportunity. I'm, you know, I'm right. here for this. You know, it's like yeah. that mentality rather than the like, do I deserve this? The like inner voice that can kind of chip away at you. Yeah, man. Um, Fitness has been a big factor, I think, in that's uh, great. Staying fit, staying active, you know. Yeah, is that just physically feeling strong, feeling your best, or is that? I feel like feeling strong definitely is a factor. So if it's like I don't know if it's like a macho thing. I don't think it's a macho thing, but it is like a when you feel strong, it's like you feel like you can do anything. You feel like you can, it's kind of like I remodeled my basement recently and I built a wall for the first time and we like put a wall in and we put drywall in and I was like, I can do anything. I can build a fucking wall. Yeah, bro. I can do anything. (laughs) Like just built, like doing that made me feel like I could do anything. And it it feels similar. Like lifting weights is like, you feel strong. It's like you look at yourself, you're like, I can see changes happening. It's like, yeah, yeah, man. I feel confident, you know? Yeah, dude. Yeah. It's maybe, I don't know, like it borderlines on douche. You know, it's like it gets real close to being douchey, but it's also like, man, it's really done wonders for like anxiety and yeah, like self doubt, confidence. That's like, great. Yeah. You know, I get the same feeling from doing my taxes. 
Yeah, yeah, I can do anything. <laughs> right. Or like making a sandwich sometimes, you know? <laughs> oh, I made my sandwich today. I didn't go to the deli and get it made for me. Yeah, right. <laughs> Man, I do so much cooking. That is that is a huge part of my life, cooking food nice. for my family. That's great. Well, my wife kind of taught me everything I know, but now it's like I do a lot of the cooking, you know? Yeah. And it is fun. It's fun to, to make something awesome. And my son's allergic to dairy, so it's like, Got to do a lot of vegan stuff, you know? Wow. That's, that challenge. probably keeps you pretty healthy. Yeah. Well, yeah. Know, I love chocolate too, so it's hard. It's a tough trade-off. Right. Right. Cool. Well, what's going on? Uh, what do you got coming up? Uh, you know, what I wanted to ask is, we kind of touched on this, like what's a full-time trumpet player, what's a typical week look like for you? A typical week. It depends what the season is, but I'll tell you, like, let's say springtime when it's not super crazy. I might have about five gigs in a week and maybe four or five of those are, or four of those are weddings, let's say. Wow. And the toughest part about that is getting out of Manhattan. (laughs) is dry is driving out of the out of the city getting to like lakewood new jersey usually on average traffic it's about like an hour and a half to get anywhere of driving like physically it's kind of exhausting to sit there on the way there and the way back so what's the benefit of living in manhattan then like why not live in new jersey why not live in new jersey well you can't just like you can't just like get on the train all that easy and go out for a night out. Um, you can't walk across the street sometimes and get like a $7 turkey sandwich on a hero. You know, there's a lot of convenience that comes with living in the city. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, you know, but then again, after the pandemic, I was like, you know, I'm not playing so many local shows anymore. Like I'm either driving out of the city or I'm flying out or whatever. So I'm thinking, I've been, you know, I've been looking on Zillow and all that. And I'm like, okay, what's next? Yeah. Think about buying a house. Thinking about it. Thinking about that or just like upgrading my rental situation. Yeah. You know, things are pretty great right now. I can practice at all out. Well, I can practice all day long and play as loud as I want. Um, Yeah. Got a lot of space and one other roommate, you know, it's pretty good, but we're always looking for something a little better. Yeah getting that real estate game man why not airbnb a basement or something sure yeah (laughs) get a little shed and sell it for 40 bucks a night there you go man yeah yeah cool so what's up what's coming up for you now what do you got going on still got a lot of weddings on the horizon we're booking up shag horns into the summertime you know not to get off track of the question but so the last two years i was playing with ripe and doing a lot of traveling a lot of touring and stuff yep. and this crossroads i was finding myself at was like kind of and i'm sure you feel the same way sometimes is getting too many good opportunities and not knowing which ones to take and there's not like there's no wrong answer to it as long as you feel good about your decision you know that's good you but you need to make a decision you need to keep moving forward so i kind of found this crossroads with that touring with ripe and the scheduling and every everything and my schedule was kind of working like a jigsaw puzzle at the time so i kind of had to make a decision to say 
all right, well, I can't be your full-time guy, even though I love doing the gigs. I love putting on a show, dancing around and all that stuff. But I was like, I'm working almost every night locally for good cash. You know, I got to make a decision and I can't be letting people down, especially the older you get, the better you get, the more professional you get. Letting people down and subbing out is really like a no-go. Right. You don't want to be known as somebody that's going to bail on the gig yeah. all the time. Right. And you stop getting the gig. Yeah. Like your word and your professionalism is just as important as your ability to show up and play. Yeah. Cool. Man, people can follow you on Instagram. We'll link your Instagram in the in the show notes. Is there something else you want me to link? No, the Instagram's great. I got an old website. It's just my name, kaisandoval.com. But cool. I haven't updated that in a couple years. So, yeah, I checked it out. It looked like a bunch of videos from like you when you were in college. So I was like, ah, I got to go back to his Instagram, yeah. do my research on his Instagram. Right, right. Yeah, I kind of feel like the old resume is a little bit, it's a little bit too old school these days. <laughs> the well, I go stuff. back and forth on like, what, what, you know, it's like we were, all, at least me, I was on MySpace, you know, that was like big and now it's gone. And so I do think like you build up a huge following on Instagram. You build up a huge following on TikTok. You know, TikTok. It's like you build up a huge following on TikTok, and the government bans TikTok in the United States, and you haven't moved that audience to your website, or you haven't moved that audience to an email list. You just right. lost all this work you did. Like so, I do think yeah. about that. Like, man, it's still important. I look at my website stats, and it's like I still got hundreds of people visiting my website, and I'm like, damn. I should be like updating this, making sure that there's current material on it. You know what I mean? Right, right. I don't want to. I feel the same way about you. It's like everybody just wants to go to the socials, but it is right. interesting. Like, you know, do you really have, I don't know, from a, like a DIY artist standpoint, I think about being able to reach your audience and like, do you really have an audience you can reach on those platforms? Is it more streamlined to reach them via email? Is it more streamlined to, be, to reach them? Are they more likely to buy something if it's, if it's through your website, if it's through email rather than through Instagram, are they more likely to click away from Instagram or not? Like, are they likely to click away from Instagram or not? And I think a lot of times the answer is no, you know, it's mm-hmm. trying to get someone to click to go listen to a podcast episode, for instance, or to go buy a new merch item. It's like, I think you're more likely to have that happen in an email than in Instagram. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, follow Kai's that... Instagram, everyone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. No, Instagram is, you know, the easy way to go. But on those thoughts, I am getting like all my videos backed up and I'm thinking, okay, I need to start going through that and putting stuff on YouTube, all my old stuff, you know? Yeah. And then you you build a following on YouTube. At least that's a following. At least you can monetize, you know, ad, you can add monetize with ad revenue. It may not be life changing money, but it could be a couple hundred bucks a month. It's like, yeah, it goes a long way. Yeah. It's always something. As long as it's, it's always something. something. Yeah, man. <laughs> and there's always something else to do, man. It's like in this there world, is, it's always man. like, oh, I gotta I gotta do that too. I gotta oh, I should get myself up for sync licensing. Oh, I wanted to ask you about this thing you're doing. You're like layering flugelhorns on beats. Are you do you have more of that stuff coming? I just saw a video of you doing that. It was beautiful. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, that was a that's a friend of mine, Corey Boris, and he's producing and stuff. He's not like so well known right now, but he's working really hard on it. But that was kind of, that's kind of the direction I want to be going for my like producing content. Yeah. I'm trying to get those gears in motion to like 
have a few producer friends that are sending me beats and I'm like, you know, layering stuff on recording. And that's kind of in, instead of like writing a symphony or writing a big band chart, that's kind of how I see my creative flow going at the moment. Cool. Like always like bite-sized manageable kind of pieces. Actually the guys at Royer reached out through a hashtag Cool. And yeah, they gave me a call and they wanted me to make like a promotional video for them. And I wow. was like, yeah, like promoting their 121 mic. 121, I, okay. Yeah. And I was like, you know, this is something I've been thinking about for a really long time. And I just, if I had all this content ready to go, then I could just send it to them. But this is a reason why I need to be making this content on a regular basis. I saw that you record, you were recording on a Royer 414. Is that right? So four one four. I don't know what that. I've, that like I don't know famous that stick. That was like that uh, famous stick ribbon mic, right? It's that one's a one twenty one. Oh, that one's one twenty one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, it's a dope. So mic. sponsorship. I was gonna ask, like, you have ten thousand plus followers on Instagram. Are sponsors reaching out yet? Like, and that's is that the first time that's happened? It's happened a couple times with mouthpieces stuff like that, but yeah. And also like this, this like Swedish company that makes this device called the AeroFit, which is like, it syncs up to a Bluetooth thing on your phone and it's like a, br a breath trainer. Yeah. I never got around to like making any videos, which, you know, probably isn't, I'm not very good at selling the thing, Yeah, but yeah, no, I, you know, when it comes to the sponsorships, I feel like it's a double-edged sword. Like you have to play this equipment and show it off. Yep. But then again, like your ears are always changing and your body's changing. So what feels good one day might not feel good a year later. So yeah. I kind of, you know, it's tough to commit to only Bach or only Yamaha. Yeah, Youngblood is sponsored by Jupiter. And so every tour, I'd be like, I'd be playing this Jupiter for a couple of weeks leading up the tour, just trying to get used to playing this horn. I don't know what I should say about this. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> it's a Jupiter trumpet. You know, it is what it is. It was yeah. really cool that we went to the factory in France and they were like, pick out anything you want. And boatloads of horns. That's nice. It was what, fun. They were kind. What horn did you end up going with? I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's got gold trim. It looked cool. Yeah, okay, uh, cool. I don't remember the bore size. I'm not much of a gear guy. Okay. I just kind of play stuff. I think it was I think it was a small bore trumpet, which I didn't realize when I got it, and then I was dealing with a whole bunch of back pressure issues. Uh because I was used to a larger bore size. Gotcha. And so that's ultimately why I had to play it for like weeks leading up to tours because I had to like completely adjust how hard I blew compared to my Edwards. Yeah. I feel like we're probably off the, at this point, we're just off the podcast. We're talking trumpet now, baby. We're just, yeah, no, exactly. I, I put it all on, man. This okay. is sometimes the best stuff. Like at the end when everybody's like, okay, we're not recording anymore. Then all the best shit comes out. Yeah, exactly. So I just, I just said, no, let's, I always just keep recording. Right. So are you playing your Edwards religiously now? Yeah. I play the X13. Like they reached out about being like sponsoring me years ago. They're like, we're watching what you're doing. We'd like you to come. And, you know, check out some horns. And so I did that and I got it at like a big discount and I like it a lot. And they do have an avenue for like, if you do a guest artist gig, you can like submit that you're doing the gig and then they'll like seed the gig with a few hundred dollars or whatever. Oh. But 
you know, you have to like fill out a form and enter all your dates in advance. And I'm just not good at that. It's like I have right. all these guest artist things that I do. I was at Indiana State University a couple of weeks ago. And I'm like going down to Houston, going down to Arizona. I'm like got all this stuff coming up because so, people play my big band charts and like, you know, I'll work with high schoolers for a couple of days and then they'll do a concert and I'll be the guest soloist on the concert. And it's always super fun and it's like a high energy couple of days. And I, and like, you know, people always ask me about my horn. And so like Edwards is getting plenty out of it. I know for sure people have bought X13s because of me, but like I've never submitted any of my events and gotten paid by X13 by Edwards for doing the events. Sure. So that's stupid. That's money that I'm leaving on the table. Yeah. There's a lot See, of it like that I got to fucking get together, man. Yeah, it seems like you you got that that most of that organization good enough together that you could you know, you could get paid for that pretty easily. Yeah, I should. It's, you know, there's a lot of I shoulds, though. It's like I've got a huge catalog of original music that all should be uploaded to licensing databases, and I haven't done that yet. You know, I finally yeah. registered everything with ASCAP, so it's like I'm chipping away at it, man. It's like That's my good. lifestyle stuff, too. It's like I'm chipping away at it. I like, quit drinking alcohol, oh. started working out all the time. It's yeah. like I'm chipping away at the things that I've kind of felt like I should be doing all along. <laughs> right. It's like right. one thing at a time, man. It's only so much one person can handle. I'm yeah. running a whole jazz program and, like, running the – tech startup with gig boss and like it's a lot of stuff and like trying yeah, to dude. maintain a high level as a player and as an artist it's like, right it's a lot of stuff yeah of all the people doing all the juggling man i'm uh, you're doing a lot of it there's a lot of people <laughs> who are like you're do i won't say the most i don't know yeah. i can't compare <laughs> but you know you see a lot of people trying to juggle the online presence yeah. sort of thing and they put all their eggs in that basket and you hear them as a player and you're like well you're not backing it up yeah you know yeah people who are I like really like, like, like let ahead. me show you how to sell your ebooks and you want to you know quadruple your income as an educator like just take my free zoom session yeah. you know that shit gets on my nerves <laughs> yeah it's tough man it's like a lot of people are now coming to me like how do i release my album like what should i do leading up to it because i've been doing a lot of this research and have been talking to a lot of people about it on the podcast. And so now I'm becoming like somebody who people think of and they reach out and I've just been meeting with people for free. Like I don't charge people anything, but now it's become, it's starting to become this thing like, man, should I make like a video and sell it? And like, you know, like, I don't know, but it's, I feel the same way about it. Like there's, we're inundated with courses to purchase and yeah, you know, yeah, I've been off or on the record, whatever. I've been kind of conflicted about, like my direction with social media. Mm -hmm. I kind of feel like the way I built up a following was by giving out information for free. And on one hand, it feels like, well, you know, even if you really absorb what I'm telling you and you become a better player than me, whatever, I'm, <laughs> I'm secure in my gigs. I'm not worried yeah. about you like stealing my gigs. So that's why it's like kind of like a flex it's that ultimate way. confidence. Yeah, ultimate confidence. Here's everything. Yeah. I don't care if you have the information I have. Right. I want you to have the information that I have. Yeah. In some way, it's like, that's how I feel. It's like, I want you to be successful. I want I want to learn this stuff myself and then give it to you so that you can be successful. Right. Because this yeah, shit is yeah. hard. Yeah. Yeah, of course. You know? And like, who's going to, there's so much information out there. Like, who's going to pay you like 20 bucks a month unless you've really like, probably people like you and maybe some other people have invested like hundreds and hundreds of hours into creating content. 
So now you have something to sell, but people like me, like I'm not, I don't have like the time or the focus to be doing all that kind of stuff. Oh, it's tough to get like a huge bank of information ready to sell. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Like, you know, I've, I, the whole social media thing really ebbs and flows with me too. Like we're, I'll go super hard for a while and then I'll just get burnt out. Just be like, man, this sucks. You yeah. know, it's like, what am I doing? Yeah. And I'll do some real life thing. I'll do some stuff in real life and I'll be like, this is more, this is what it's about. Yeah. I'm out here playing. I'm putting right. on shows. Yeah. You know, I'm meeting people. I go out, I'm going out to shows. I'm connecting with people in real life. And I feel like, why do I even need that at all? But then there's, you know, there's opportunities that come out of it. It's like a visibility thing. It's a, it's almost, a, I don't know if it's necessary or not. Actually, one of the questions I had written down here to, to ask you is like, does social media matter for getting gigs? It's like, that's you know, a I huge, that. <laughs> that's a super important question. Yeah. You want me to answer like I'm sure, man. <laughs> okay. I'll give you a small backstory. Like a year into being in New York, I was playing a lot of different like little shows and stuff. And I think I had the realization I was playing at like Williamsburg Music Hall or some other small kind of like jazz kind of group, jazz place. And there was probably 10 people in the audience. And the band was about like six people. And I was thinking, you know what? I'd rather just stay home and practice and film myself practicing than play these gigs for like 10 people. Because, you know... At the time, I was like, oh, I can get like three or 400 views on something. Yeah. And that's a whole lot more views than 10 people not taking videos. And, you know, that switch, you know, investing that time back into practicing and taking videos, sharing information with people, that was huge. And yeah, it was huge for putting myself out there. And it's definitely a constant upkeep of staying relevant and staying at the forefront of people's minds for yeah. hiring. Yeah, exactly, man. It's yeah. like people that people think of you then when they yeah. do things. It's like I certainly notice that when I talk about education related things, when I talk about building my program here at the university and like what I'm doing as a player, what I'm doing as an educator, what I'm doing as a writer. It's like if I'm documenting those things in a visible way, then I'm getting those calls, man. It's like Yeah. I wondered, I you know, it's like the pandemic hit. I also moved away from the city I was in. So I was like, am I going to be doing as many guest artist gigs as I was? Like I was doing a ton between January and May every year. It was like a big income generator for me and just like a great experience. And I would sell a shitload of merch to the students. And, you know, it's like, is this going to continue after the pandemic hits? And it's like, sure enough, man, we're firing on all cylinders again. Yeah. And I think that- I do think a part of that is like staying in the public eye. Yeah. Yeah. I got to say, dude, like the one, I love the merch. I love the design and it's ballsy, but I like it. And especially doing it in tandem with like whatever clinics you're doing or like working with like young people. That's like the perfect combination right there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like with my merch, it's like, I've got 15 CDs I've recorded. So I have like a suitcase full of CDs. I have posters that I printed for like previous album releases and yeah. I have snap bracelets and stickers. And so I've got this like light up suitcase that I bring and I open it and the lights turn on and that's all my shit. Nice. And then I just, I'll just give stickers away or like I'll give snap bracelets away if people buy CDs. 
it's like CDs are what they are now. It's like, you know, depending on where you go, not a lot of people are probably going to buy them. But yeah, a lot of people bought posters at the last thing I did. You know, hmm. it's like they went, oh, this is cool. Who did this? And it's like I had it. Do you know Dave Chisholm? Yeah, I've heard the name quite a lot. But... Yeah, it's like the trumpet player, composer, and like a graphic novelist. Okay. You know, That's he did sick. like Chasing the Bird, Charlie Parker in California, and he did Enter the Blue. Okay. Which are like jazz comics. Enter the Blue was done in, in collaboration with Blue Note Records. Oh, wow. Uh, so he's like really hit the big time as a graphic novelist. And I commissioned him to do like a, actually, I have it right here. Oh, yeah. That's dope. Does that say you know, AO? <laughs> so it says it says AMO, like Adam Meckler Orchestra. Oh, sick. In my hair. I used to have really long hair. Uh-huh. And I was like, could you just do like a thing with me playing trumpet? And it says AMO in it. That's sick. And so that's the original. And then I made copies of it and printed it on nice, nice poster board or whatever. And it's like, that's what I sell. That's my one poster. That's dope. But yeah, it's like, that's. I would do three, four hundred dollars in merch after those shows, and it's like there was a point in time when I felt like, is this too much? Is this too narcissistic to have so much merch? And I was like, fuck that, man! I'm, right. I'm doing four hundred dollars in merch in North Dakota. Like, of yeah. course I'm going to do this. You know, no, make this that is money. a no brainer. I should be doing it. And like Youngblood yeah. was a big eye opener too, because like Youngblood will do eleven hundred dollars in merch after a show. It's like mm. holy shit! Every night eleven hundred dollars in merch. That's posters, vinyl, CDs. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's that's like one. Wave. That's like one used Bach on eBay. One used <laughs> Bach. One Bach thirty-seven. Right, you're right. All right, man. I don't have to keep any more of your time, dude. That this was oh, awesome. Thank, thanks for yeah. chatting. No, it was great to meet you and talk with you, man. It was great. Yeah, yeah. likewise, man. Cool. One. Thanks for the inspiration. I dig the T-shirt too. Likewise. Thank you, man. Thanks. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Kai Sandoval. If you dig the show, please tell a friend and maybe post your favorite episode on social media and talk about why you like it. If you tag us, we'll repost it. Follow the show wherever you listen. So if you're listening on YouTube, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. If you're listening on Spotify, you can hit the plus sign. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can follow us there. That kind of stuff is what helps the show grow and what helps it show in other people's feeds. We want to keep this thing going and we appreciate you all supporting what we're doing here. If you're a performing musician, especially somebody who leads your own bands and freelances in other bands, the Gig Boss app is a really valuable tool. You can create groups and create events and tag the groups to the events that you create. People get invites that they can accept and decline and they can see all the details of the gig, including linking charts and recordings in the notes section and all kinds of stuff. It's a great way to keep everything in one place. I spent my career kind of like sifting through email chains, 50 emails long, crazy long text threads, looking for details of the gig as I was like changing diapers and passing off kids to my wife and running out the door to a gig. It was really hectic and difficult to manage everything. So we wanted to build a tool to help musicians organize their careers. Gig Boss is there now. It's free. It's on iOS and Android. Give it a download and check it out. I'd love to know what you think. Adam at gigbossapp.com. Thank you so much for listening. Appreciate you guys.